like, okay, like, if this person who I admire is taking an interest in our history, I'm like, okay, maybe there is something there. Because when I moved to St. Martin, you know, like, both of my parents were technically immigrants. And so, like, there's always, like, like Wait, oh, what's how, a St. Martiner? Who's a St. Martin? How old were you when you moved to St. Martin? No, I was born on St. Martin. But oh, my okay. parents, so, like, immigrated. Ah, okay, yeah. okay, okay. And so, like, there was always this, like, question of what is a St. Martiner? And I just okay. never cared to learn about St. Martin history because I was like, well, technically, my family's roots aren't technically deep in St. Martin's soil, yeah. like, you know. Um, but really and truly, like, because of your interest in history and just, like, the amazing content that you make and, like, even the papers you share with me, like, it has completely changed my entire worldview uh -huh. and like honestly like I feel so empowered to be a St. Martiner like more so than I ever have in my life because I feel like I actually understand the context in which my life exists and that is just so empowering and so I thank you for walking oh. a different path even committing salary suicide <laughs> because you out here helping people and you don't even realize it like honestly like uh, I admire you like really well, thank and truly. you but I'm curious like what made you go down that path of like learning about St. Martin history and like what was it like when you went abroad to study and you know further your education in that area i need to make a pause right here yeah <laughs> in this show so we're recording all of me because i didn't see the numbers on the screen i was like oh like we're still not recording so that's why i asked you the question like the introduction the <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh we're still not recording we're still asking like <laughs> uh so okay you can totally edit out my question about like no, it's all good. I, okay. love, I love the organicness of it. Let okay. it be. Okay, so you just asked me... Um, like, why history? And why St. Martin history? Um, so first, I want to say thank you for having me on your show, Harsha. I know that this took a while, but I'm really happy to be here and to finally have this conversation with you. Um, why history? Why St. Martin history? I have to say, like, I always grew up like in a strong St. Martin household. Um, growing up, uh, I had my dad with me until I was nine years old before he passed away. And I mean like every single person that I can imagine would walk in and out of our house, out of his office. And I was always with him and I would just always be hearing these rich stories about St. Martin. Um, and I went to Learning Unlimited, which like you uh, already know, is an American-based uh, education system or school. And the stories that I witnessed at home were not the stories that were reflected in my education system. Exactly. And I always thought that that was just a fault of my parents choosing the American school and not as a fault of the whole island. So I always took an interest in it. You know, my father passed away when I was nine. My mom is from Curacao. Uh, and then luckily I had an amazing stepdad who came into my life as well, Mr. Keith Franca, Mr. Keith Franca, so formal, but he is a formal man. So anyone, who, <laughs> I think I called him Mr. Franca for like the first five years that he was with us. Um, and he was also like, you know, from a St. Martin family, but grew up in Curacao. So, uh, then I started to learn much more about like the Dutch Caribbean history in general, because you know, him and my mom would have these conversations. Still, once again, stories that are not reflected in the school system that I went to. I decided to then go study in the Netherlands uh, when I finished high school. And I went up to Holland with a bunch of students from all the schools on the island. And boop, lo and behold, no student was going up there with St. Martin history, you know? So, um, I felt like it was something that I thought that was just unique to people who went to Learning Unlimited, maybe who were in a different school system, but it, it happened to be a pattern all around. So uh, when I went to university, that's when I really started to use my university degree, which was in the social sciences, to focus on finding more information about St. Martin. And that's how I started to really become passionate about it, because I started of course, when you uh, learn the social sciences, it's more about how stories are made, how history is made. 
Um, and so you start to question like, or not question, but really understand like why certain information doesn't exist about certain places, what it takes to create an environment in which that information is being championed and created. Um, and that's how I really got into it. That is so awesome. Like, I swear, like, I was always just like, why, why? And then Ralph too, I was like, what are up with these people? I'm like, why do they care about this little island? Because like you said, in LU, I, I think there was only one opportunity to learn Caribbean history, but it was either that or take AP world history. And I was trying to get into some colleges. So obviously your choices are thing that's going to help you get into a college or a class that's like, okay, you learn one sentence in the entire book covered St. Martin. Because it's like, even within Caribbean history, I feel like St. Martin, because we are like the Dutch colonies, we're kind of like neglected even. Because there's like, people don't even realize like even within like our colonial context, there is still like British colonies versus Dutch colonies versus French colonies, which is like a really weird thing that I would only ever see show up at like regional competitions where it was like St. Martin amongst other islands and just seeing how we were perceived within the Caribbean. Um, but I must say like now that I, all of these untruths that I'm learning, like I'm telling you, when I learned about the one Tete Loke, I read that line, I was like, Carla, what are you doing to me? I was like, this is, <laughs> and I was like, the statue literally right outside of our school, there is no factual evidence to base it on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like how lost are we? My issue with the way in which sometimes like history is crafted is that in its absence, like we realize that we still need stories to empower, empower us, right? Like history is always empowering. Someone told me... Uh, that, you know, when you study national history, you're never going to hear like bad countries about or bad stories about your country. You know, like that's the whole purpose that you come from this great place. Uh, and so I understand that, like, as a people, we always knew that we needed like stories and these legends to keep us uh, going along. And I think that there is a reason why the story of Juan Tete Loque somehow got transplanted here uh, and, and got taken up. And we all are... We, we don't all know that it's a legend. <laughs> um, I was going to say a learning truth. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's like for us to take like the power in the story and to understand what it means for us. But it becomes more uh, true each and every day that we need to accept stories for what they are to be able to represent them better, right? Like there is no harm in saying that this might not have been a person who existed in St. Martin, but the values of freedom are something that our people always fought for, right? And, yeah. and we do have stories um, of enslaved persons on St. Martin who, you know, constantly defied uh, the, their plantation owners. And I think that that's the shame, that when we get so comfortable with uh, one tale to represent the whole idea of the freedom of enslaved persons, we also forget the tales of very real people uh, of our country who also fought for those same values who whose stories we have recorded and who we could also represent as part of our national narrative exactly I guess like when you went abroad to focus and use your like institutional power to actually dive deep into St. Martin history was it easy to find information <laughs> no it was horrible so I mean first of all when you come across any archive in the Netherlands about the Dutch Caribbean, if St. Martin's even in it, you're super lucky. And then for the any for 300 photos or 300 documents on Curaçao, there's like half a photo or half a document of St. Martin, you know? So um, it was really hard to, with this idea that there's no raw data that you could take from. Um, but then more and more, I started to, I think, become more comfortable with the idea that, I mean, St. Martin's development to where we are today, it really started in the 1950s, you know, and there are still people alive today 
that experienced 1950s St. Martin. I started to become more interested in a specific time period of history so that I could be able to get information and data, uh, which did make it easier. Uh, but then you have, of course, like the issue that academia in general, uh, written sources are what they take as uh, the top echelon of receiving information, right? The minute you tell them you got information from an oral source, they're like, well, don't forget like memory and the effects of memory and the politics of memory and all of this fancy stuff just to be able to say like, you shouldn't Experience trust. doesn't matter, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that you shouldn't trust oral sources. And I think that sometimes uh, when we go to school, we, we take things for granted, right? So like you'll be in a class and they'll show you like, okay, a written source, great. And oral sources, like all these issues and problems. But then you start to ask like, okay, but who wrote, who wrote written sources, right? Was it generally, a person? Generally white land-owning men. And that leaves out the story of women. It leaves out the story of people of color. It leaves out the story of people with disabilities. Um, and so then you start to see the way in which academia also holds up these different systems of excluding and creating minorities and how their voices don't get included into this larger grand narrative. And, you know, there's like a lot of movements like social history that, that work to undo this work that's done uh, by these larger trends. Um, and, and for that, I was really lucky, especially in my master's program, uh, to have a, a, a Caribbean scholar uh, who was versed in social history as a teacher. And, you know, it's just life is basically a bunch of sometimes coincidences that come together that open up different doors and worlds of seeing the, uh, the way you thought about life, past, present, future. Um, and I was really lucky actually in my master's program to just, because I didn't know when I applied to university in Geneva that there was a Caribbean scholar there. It, it just happened. Um, and that really opened so many doors for me and what I was able to do in terms of like research and the way I was able to see like history as a discipline, um, and also the hierarchy within that and you know, the work that we have to undo. It, it makes it much more easy when you know the system at play. Yeah, exactly. Now for a message from our sponsors. Thank you for supporting this podcast. If you are enjoying this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a review. It 100% helps us grow this podcast and get our message out there to help and inspire others. Have thoughts or opinions you want to share? Join the conversation on Anchor or on Spotify. I love to hear from you all and I can't thank you enough for your support. With that, let's get back to the good stuff. But I guess, like, how was it moving to Geneva? Like, what is it like living in Switzerland? You know, the neutral territory where they people siphon their money secretly and yeah, that's when you or something when you realize yeah, the UN. Um, That was great. I. You know, because I, I chose to go to university in Geneva because I had a conversation with my professor who basically said, um, you know, my entire fight while I was in my undergrad was about identity. So not only was I researching identity in what I was studying, but it also became my life because in the classroom, I had to justify uh, myself. I had to justify my identity constantly. And it was always something that he saw me like embroiled in. And he was like, I think for your educational purposes, you should really go somewhere where your identity is not so much being challenged or questioned, or you're not asked to perform certain identities. Um, so he really recommended that I would apply to the Graduate Institute of Geneva. And uh, I took that because I also agreed with him that it's very distracting when you're constantly 
asked to perform your identity to then study it at the same time. Like, uh, it becomes very exhausting. I was very angry in my undergrad program. Um, so already moving to, like, Switzerland in a place where they just don't know St. Martin and its colonial history, and there isn't this idea of, like, criminality attached to Antillianness. It was just, like, I could breathe a little more. But, of course, Switzerland is not free from the European mentality of, you know, the division and hierarchies of gender and race and everything. Because I think that in, there's one region in Switzerland, which is also like one of the last pe places to give women the right to vote. Not saying that it's like a really backwards country, but like there are certain ideas that we have of like progressiveness of Europe that are not there. They sometimes don't exist. They exist in the big cities, but once you start getting out, it, it's not there. But otherwise, it was the most international experience I've ever had. I mean, of course, Geneva is the home to the United Nations. So you already have so many people from around the world that are there to represent their countries. But on top of that, my university itself was extremely international. And that's where I really met like in mass, like students from Latin America, Africa, Asia. And there were enough numbers to form like viable communities, you know, so Uh, you were really able to immerse yourself in different cultures while um, I was there. And I was not constantly being questioned about like being a St. Martiner and <laughs> different questions about colonialism and Zwarte Piet. Like I never heard the word Zwarte Piet like come up yeah, and I was exactly. just like, oh, They wow, don't how know. amazing. They're just like St. Martiner, cool, awesome. Yeah. So I was really able to get into like academic theories more during my master's because of that. Um, and I, I, I really love that experience and, and Geneva itself, I mean, Switzerland, it's the most, it's like the third most expensive city in the world to live in. So I didn't do much besides study and me and all the other foreign students, like we just would meet up with like wine and food that we would have to buy at Carrefour. Because I mean, if you live in St. Martin, then, you know, like we completely make it normal that you cross a border to go to a supermarket, right? But when I was in Switzerland, people would be like, oh my God, like it's so expensive here. Like we have to go to the, you know, to France to grocery shop. And it was so funny because I found it the most normal thing because it's what you you're do like, when yeah, you're in St. Martin. Uh. Yeah, basically it's like, I would be calling my mom and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to the French side to uh, buy groceries. And she's like, you mean France, right? And I'm like, Yeah, but I mean, it's the same thing in St. Martin, like the French side, like it's across the border right there. Um, so that was that was really cool. It wasn't cool, of course, to not be able to like afford a lot of life. But um, <laughs> did you try was... skiing out there at all? I'm curious because I'm like, no. now that I ski a little, I'm just like, now I know the mountains. <laughs> I did not ski. I went into the mountains. I went to Chamonix. Um But I, I did not partake in the, in the sports side of it. I just, you know, like hobbled like a penguin through the snow, scared to like fall and watched really? everyone else. But it was well, beautiful. I'm like, we're island babies. We don't do that, you know? Yeah. Mm. No, but And it's cool. Okay. Like when it's beautiful, I, for sure. I think I should have tried it. But in that moment, it was also like, like I mentioned, also being a student, you no, know, I'm like, Expensive. am I oh my god yeah expensive. am I gonna call my mom to be like oh can you like help me fund like ski suit skis uh, mask like all this kind of Lessons. stuff it's ridiculous no. ridiculous it's an so, expensive yeah. sport for real I was like did not know but in Switzerland it's actually like super normal and you're the st the the state actually makes sure that as a Swiss national you're actually by law allowed to ask your employer for time off uh to give ski lessons wow that's so cute it, yeah it shows you like how much also there it's it it's not just like an activity but it's part of the culture yeah because it's part of once once something makes it into labor laws it is part of your culture <laughs> for sure i guess i'm curious now that you mentioned like identity how do you identify yourself It's just like being Carla. I mean, I think it always changes based, based on the context that I'm in. I mean, through and through, I identify as a St. Martiner. But 
I think that sometimes like identifying as a St. Martiner in a situation is not like what's being asked of you, right? So for example, like you're not going to go to a women's rally and be like, yeah, I'm a St. Martiner, <laughs> you know? So I think that identity is like this beautiful fluid thing that we we go across and identifying as a St. Martiner has of course like always been like a a, a solid thing that I've always done. Um, but I do think that I question like what being a St. Martiner means. And when I say that I'm a St. Martiner, does it correspond to like what other St. Martiners mean when they say that they're a St. Martiner? That I do think can, can really vary, especially because St. Martin is not a state. Valid, um, valid. Yes. You know, I think that sometimes when we, uh, I'll say like in the conversation around St. Martin-ness, the perfect ideal is when the nation matches the state. Uh, and so as a St. Martiner, you want the boundaries of where your government governs to match your identity. Um, and I think that the beautiful thing that my uh, educational experiences and, and traveling in my past job gave me is realizing how many people around the world uh, identify with nations that are not synonymous with the boundaries of their state. Uh, and when we start to realize like the fluidity in that and also the space for movement and what identifying with a state means versus a nation, it opens like a much more fluid way of understanding who you are, uh, when you can identify as what, and that it doesn't always have to be like a brick wall that you're beating up against and like, there's a, you are this, you can't be this, and there's a, you know, this hard boundary. I guess I'm curious, like, could you elaborate on what do you mean by, like, identifying between the nation versus the state? Yeah. So the nation in, like, academia or in the social sciences, the nation is seen as always the cultural entity, and the state is seen as uh, the autonomous entity that has like the power to govern uh, within a certain territory. Um, and so the governed territory uh, within like studies of nationalism, like the ideal was always posed that the nation should match the state boundaries. And that of course became super uh, contested or challenged when you had a bunch of European countries decide to carve out the world and unite a bunch of nations within states, then realize, okay, well, the theories that apply for our nation statehood don't necessarily apply to other regions of the world. Um, but then I'm also careful to say that because, for example, if you see like uh, independence movements in Catalonia and Spain, it's also about there being a nation that doesn't feel like it matches with their state, right? So it's not just a situation that exists within uh, countries outside of Europe, but Europe itself, who made this ideal of the perfect nation state, it also is not that way. It, it could be the same for the Netherlands, where uh, people from Vriesland don't necessarily, uh, might not necessarily identify with people from the rest of the Netherlands and how that's communicated I see. I feel um, like I understand what you mean. So it's kind of like this idea, for example, like Texas wanting to be outside of the United States because they feel like they don't align or like Quebec wanting to be out of Canada or like different tribes within Africa being forced to be within one nation or even in India where you have different types of Indians that are forced to adopt this label of Indian um, which within it hides a lot of the different nations or like the different groups of people that have different identities, um, but are forced to like minimize that because it doesn't fit into like this bigger context of how we are choosing to organize the world, which is awesome. Because now that I feel like I understand what you're saying with that, I'm curious, like, how do you think, because when I look at the world, like the earth is naturally unequal, you know, like just like how resources were spread across different continents, um, the earth was not made equal there africa came resource rich in europe came resource poor and as a result of that you saw um different groups of people trying to lay claim to different resources whether it be through force or through 
as we say today, partnerships or alliances. Um, and it's interesting because it's like, I feel like humans were trying to compartmentalize the earth because it is such a big space that we like had to put it in a box kind of. So we started with like continents, then we were like, okay, we'll create nations and then states. And then within states, you have like counties or like, you know, down to the zip code pretty much um, that comes to your straight. And it's like we as people have loved just putting things into boxes to kind of just organize all of the stuff of our reality. Uh, but in doing so, we realized that we just started shoving things into boxes instead of saying like, hey, is this the right box for you? Um, and it pretty much became a thing where the UN then decided this is the series of boxes. Get in them or you're not a part of us. <laughs> you know? And you're kind of bullied into it when the UN, who they say they're for everybody, is really and truly about the big nations, which is the United States, China, Russia, you know, the really big powers that are flexing their control every which way they want to. Um, and it's like really and truly, I think now we're in a world where like this whole concept of how people relate with one another, because like the Internet is truly decentralized and like we're seeing like these decentralized technologies emerge to replace like governments that we've seen to be inefficient at managing such large pools of resources. I'm just curious, like, what do you think like that? model of identity that we should move to because I feel like in America especially there's been a war on identity I think that's really what we're in right now I don't think we know it but really and truly I feel like that's what I'm experiencing in the United States there's a war on identity how should we identify ourselves I, I didn't realize like growing up in St. Martin that I feel like in St. Martin, we're used to the idea of people being different from us. You know, just like in LU, everyone had a different race, religious background, um, whatever it be, to come to a country where you could actually have homogeny um, despite the large size and that there actually are neighborhoods where people look exactly like one another. Um, even though they're calling themselves diverse, they're not truly diverse. You only see them in like those capital more progressive cities like on the west or like new york um you're seeing this war on identity and it's like such an interesting thing but i feel like we don't know like society doesn't know how to deal with it and this is where i feel like saint martin really could play a role in that because we from the get-go have had this sort of war on identity but it's never been studied or given light of day because St. Martiners don't realize like the power in our story. And that's why I take so much pride in you studying what you did because largely you're filling that gap in a way, you know, by actually showing that this is a discussion that actually doesn't just help us as a country, but helps the world because we're going through this identity war. So I know that was a lot. But I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on all that. <laughs> no, because I definitely think, you know, like, especially in a lot of the the post-colonial theory that is written about the Caribbean, it, it really tries to acknowledge this, that this idea that globalization started much earlier for the Caribbean region than the rest of the world. And that's not just because, you know, I mean when colonialism uh, was exercised in the way that it was exercised, for example, in African countries uh, and in Asian countries, it was different from the societies that were created uh, within the Caribbean through the forces of colonization and to support the plantation economy. Um, and so in the, uh, a lot of uh, what is written about the Caribbean is really about the lessons uh, that we're failing to study within the Caribbean region that could be useful for the rest of the world. So I, I really agree with you that in understanding more about the way forces have unfolded within the Caribbean region and how uh, people with, you know, different cultural uh, backgrounds and essences have come together to later for us to not really be able to like pick things apart because they've come together under different circumstances, you know, because um, I, I always make sure not to like essentialize, you know, like, I don't think you should come to St. Martin and say like, oh, like this string is European, this string is African, this string is Asian, you know, it's because we, communities 
were forced to come or came by choice to this region. There was different climate. There were different resources available here. And all of that action of constantly having to interact with a, a different environment, uh, with different uh, uh, persons from different backgrounds and and doing it peacefully, you know, of course, there are like stories like, for example, within Trinidad, where, where you do hear of uh, tensions that are uh, rising between uh, different groups based on like ethnic lines. But otherwise, like the story of the Caribbean is very much one of, uh, you know, how do different identities come together? Um, but at the same time, the region has had its failures, right? Because you can see that... Uh, Possibly that has been like a good outcome for uh, when you're, we're talking about ethnicity. But for example, when we're talking about uh, sexual orientation, uh, you know, then has the coming together of different cultures. Like how did that result within our region, you know? And so there are lessons that we can take and certain lessons that we can't. But it definitely shows you the effects of having access to certain resources I mean, the fact that Haiti was the most resource-rich island within the region and is now listed as the poorest country within the Western Hemisphere, right? So to be able to understand like the processes under which that happens, it also shows you that not everything is just about having, right? Uh, it, it's all these different historical forces that are constantly coming together, Um And in that sense, like uh, like you said, you know, with the United Nations, a lot of these large nations have the power because at the end of the day, like military might is military might. And that's what we're seeing bully right now. Bully. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it makes me annoyed that people don't accept that that is the truth of what we really live in. It's not like, I think like living in the West, Americans have this like, oh, you know, we're chill. Like war doesn't come over here. But it's like you have that luxury because you've killed a bunch of other people in foreign countries to make other countries afraid of your military. That's why you get to live and sleep good at night while people in the Ukraine have to like run and hide and pray that they get into a safe place. You know, it's like, but we don't realize that I feel like in, in this context. And then you have people that say stupid stuff like defund militaries, but it's like, okay, you defund America's military. That's just going to get replaced by another bigger, badder bully again we're still dealing in like this huge power context. And to me, it's like, as a human, I'm just so sick of it. I'm like, oh my God, like, why are y'all so obsessed with this like need to feel like this claim over land or people? I'm like, y'all are legit psychopaths. Like, I don't understand why in 2022, we trying to have like one king and queen type of dealio. Like, it's not working. We can do better. Why do we need all this complexity? And when you look at like Europe, especially right now, and like people are always like, oh, it's always going to be the third world war. But you're seeing like this weird like flexing of power, like, you know, like when it comes to even like what do we identify? Because and then it's like interesting because this is how it will be captured in history as well. Like from Russia's point of view, Putin thinks the Ukraine is a part of the USSR flat out, like from his perspective, they belong to him. And so he doesn't see it as I'm invading a country. He's seeing it as I'm taking back what belongs to me. And in the global context, Ukrainians don't define themselves that way. They're like, no, 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 this is our country. And you're trying to make us to be a part of a state that we don't want to be a part of. And then you're seeing global powers try to understand, like, even from a capitalistic point of view, because there's money involved in all of this, of, when do they decide to get their toes wet into this and how that affects the economy? Because really and truly, that's what it comes down to. They don't care about me and you, Carla. They're like, how do we finesse this situation so people get paid? I feel like that's really and truly what it comes down to. And America is one of those countries that like to get paid. And so, like, I'm just like, mm red flag red flags everywhere and it's like a weird thing because at least we haven't grown up in a war or had to experience one living on a beautiful tropical island that don't like beef with nobody but even still like because we operate in this european context you're seeing that even our government is being forced to have an opinion on something where they would probably rather not have an opinion 
Um, and it's like in the issue of like the Russian uh, millionaires or billionaires that have their yachts on our island. I'm trying to tell them like, hey, Brody, we might have to confiscate that. But I'm like, who are you going to send? Our police or the gendarmes or the Marine? Because I'm like, we don't got no military. <laughs> like, who, who is going to flex this power? Right. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for sure, we are witnessing now, like, I mean, power is power, you know, like, and I think we've been witnessing that for a while. I mean, the best example of like the way that power and, and war like an is earthquake, you know, the tectonic plate just rubbing and pressure building and it's like a little yeah. release and then. And it's also like, in these contexts for me, like who gets to control the narrative, you know, and um we, we see now that I think it's probably one of the first times. And I mean, I was younger when uh, there was the invasion of Iraq. Mm. No, so I didn't say that right. Okay, no worries. So, for example, for the war in Afghanistan <laughs> that, we right. up, <laughs> yes, that we grew up uh, in, um, there, there wasn't, I don't remember actively hearing about like this narrative that there is like a narrative of the that's being given to the people of Afghanistan and the narrative that's being given to like the rest of the world and this is the first time where we're seeing this war unfold and part of the news cycle is dissecting what Putin is telling to the Russian people and what like the rest of us are are seeing and thinking and um the way in which TikTok uh, and and Instagram Twitter, are all of it, all the social medias exactly are playing a role. I mean, like in the Arab Spring, we did have uh, Twitter and Facebook playing a role and really giving us a look into uh, what the younger generations were feeling and doing. But I I felt like that was also a different kind of content, and this might also just be my disconnect with like TikTok also. But I mean, we're seeing like edited videos, for example, like of propaganda. a girl. Yeah, but like a girl creating, for example, like what her day is like in a bomb shelter, you know. And that was something that like Twitter and Facebook were not, not do, capturing yeah. in the method of social media that they were. Um, so it's it's really hard, as I think right now, as an individual, I can say, to try to filter what you're consuming. But then also to ask ourselves, because, I mean, this was always a huge conversation, but, like, the role of media and, and the role of journalists is always to try to give people enough information, but also to, like, inspire them enough to want to somehow help solve this crisis. And think right? critically, too, about what's happening yeah. in the world, you know? Exactly. But, you know, like they, they do want to motivate you to some sort of action. Mm. And so right now, I think it's also really hard to be part of this conversation, but to also realize that from the sidelines, from a Caribbean island, how performative sometimes uh, having or saying these things or, or, or voicing your opinion can be. Because at the end of the day, like you have to ask yourself, like, I mean, what is needed to end this conflict? And is it really you sharing something on your Instagram story about how you side with the people of Ukraine that's going to bring an end to this, you know? Yeah, and exactly. so I think that social media has also twisted uh, or, or, or made us... actually looks like. Yeah, and, and made us think about, like, okay, like, how as human beings do we act? Um, and, and sometimes I think we need to realize that, like, a like and a share is not enough to help a cause. And I don't know how much satisfaction we should be getting from the fact that like you feel good because you shared something and now you feel like you're down with the cause. Like there is something to ask about ourselves. Like if that gives you a sense of satisfaction, I'm not really sure about the way in which we're developing. I feel you. It's like a very shallow act. Yes. You know? Yes. It's like, and it's okay. worse when they catch what they shared was misinformation. That's even more funny because then I'm just like, now you're entertaining me. Like, oh my God, this is hilarious. 
uh, so, but I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, and and the thing is, like, I can't imagine during like, I mean, I still went to school learning about floppy disks, and now we have to teach kids about media literacy in determining like how can you tell if the information that you're seeing with your eyes is not factual um and so it's a completely different landscape and ball game that everyone finds themselves in not just young people but i always think about young people because i'm like your minds are being formed in this environment you know and i think my way because like i said i still learn through floppy disks <laughs> But uh, we're at the point where we need to also question, like, you know, what will engagement look like in the future? Like, are we ever going to see a march in person or like marches going we'll be to be in held the in the we'll metaverse? In the metaverse, exactly. Like, we're all just going to roll up in front of like the White House or something from all around the, the world. In the metaverse, when you in your living room smoking yeah. a day and eating the pizza that got delivered by the drone from Amazon. Let's be real, Carla. This is the future. <laughs> And I mean, talking about Amazon, it's like, because we were talking about countries and the United Nations, you know, like, if we think about the fact that like corporations such as Heineken are the ones yeah, that are bringing money, money yeah. more than and, countries is red. They're the ones bringing, for example, portable drinking water to certain communities around the world, right? So when you take that into consideration and realize that the basic services that we say that the state should provide, corporations are now providing, right? And part of the reason why, you know, we're grateful to our government is because, you know, they keep the lights on, they keep the water flowing, etc. But what if your government is like not the one that... They're a parent. They give us a sense of like, oh, there's a, someone that we think has shit on lock. I feel like that's yeah. why we care about government. They, they make us feel like... Someone's at least controlling the ship, you know? Yeah. So we're not all like, so you mean all of this we do every day? Like, there's no actual power? It's all in my head? Oh, my God. And then, you know, people lose it from there, and then it's yeah. uh, tra-la-la. And then you realize that you've, like, deconstructed your reality to a point where you're like, okay, do I even exist? And then you're exactly. like, okay, I've gone too far now, and so like, I, need I need to, to like, because then at that point, back. people will get suicidal, and you're like, we're not trying to go that route. We're trying to still no. matter in the world, yeah. okay? Like, yeah. yes. And it's a delicate balance, right? Like, we've reached... Nihilism all the way back, I feel you. It's, it goes, it, it flops and flows, yes, yes. Yeah, no, but it, it, and so when we think about the fact that, I mean, Elon Musk is now providing Wi-Fi services to Ukraine. And so when we think about the role of corporations and also the speed at which they're able to do things, it also makes you question more and more what the world order will look like, right? Because we know, for example, like at the different cops um, that corporations are in the room because they hold so much power, money, access to resources. But it, it it's a slippery slope in the sense that it's so great. I agree. Corporations have the money. They identify a cause and they can throw money at that cause. They can get it money. solved. They can. They really can. But then when it goes wrong, how are they held accountable? Especially under the pretext that they're trying to provide help, right? So I, I took notice of the fact that Elon Musk made the announcement that when he he brought the the, the routers or the the servers, however it's referred to in my non tech words, yeah, um, <laughs> that they had to be really conscious that they could be hacked. You know, like it's not like secure, etc. And and so he's also trying to also be accountable, right? Because you're you're trying to warn a population that I'm trying to bring you help, but it can be used against you. Um, and I wonder what would happen in certain contexts, like if somehow like some huge harm came through what a corporation did, like a huge harm, like how are corporations, how would they be held accountable? Because for what example- What happened to Meta? Were they really yeah. like, because like, if you just look at like what Congress was asking these big tech CEOs, those questions are pathetic. Yeah. Straight up. But like and, and that's the thing, like we can't, and, and that's where I'm like really forgiving with governments. We can't expect people who regulate after the fact to keep up with what people are developing like 
faster and faster each and every day, you know? And for me, it's like politicians have just, the best politicians are actually people who listen, who are surrounded by like great expertise on certain issues and they speak really well, you know, because they need people to get behind them and what they're saying. But you cannot expect one person to have all the information on the environment, on IT, etc. I mean, no corporation works like that. Like, think about the hundreds of thousands of employees that these companies have to do the services that you have. Like, now working in corporate America, it blows my mind, like, how many teams are involved in this process, like, to get you your computer, to get you, like, people don't realize there's a magic to it, but they're funded. They got bread to support that kind of a vision. Government's got to tax you for that kind of money. It's different. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And, and so I think that uh, in foreseeing the growth of corporations, for me, it's just like... Uh, like pick uh, a team. Are you team Apple? Are you team Google? Are you team Microsoft? Like team Amazon? Like these are the new nations, Carla. Like, it's them oh, and no. China. Like that's <laughs> the China will be the one country still in the ballgame. But um, no, but it's true. Like our government also has to decide like, okay, in foreseeing like the growth of corporations and what corporations are doing, how are we as a government going to regulate the work done by corporations? And what are we actually going to actively pursue governments and co- or other corporations uh, to help us with? Because it's like, I, re- I remember that the governor's symposium in 2017 was about data and IT. And the idea was what would happen if we transformed Pond Island into a A data center, not a data center, but I forgot what it was called, but I want to say like an e-city or like there, there was a smart city. That was the fancy word for it. Okay. Smart city. Okay. But it's like, okay, if you want to pursue that as a country, right? It's like, okay. So how are you aligning yourself with certain corporations that bring these services and who need these services that you could also say like, hey, you set up shop here, we do this for you. But, you know, like this is the way that you have to give back to our community. And so I think more and more as we're trying to align ourselves country wise, it's so important for us to realize like the growing power of corporations and that we are also as a country or as an island community, going to have to align ourselves with corporations and the way that they're developing if we want to advance as a people. And you know what make me mad, Carla? Is our government, right? They know. I feel like they know, right? And I saw this post, Blondish, don't be mad at me, because I actually love you, girl. I swear to God. But, you know, there's Blondishes on our island doing her DJ thing. Cool, go for her. She big into NFTs, which low-key, I have a bone to pick with her because, like, if you all about enlightenment of planet Earth, but then you're supporting technology that literally is unsustainable, where is your moral value? But you know what? That's a conversation for a different day. Anyways, I saw in her post, she talked about, oh, the Minister of Tourism reached out to me to maybe do something with NFTs and tourism on St. Martin. I was like, bro. So even within our country, I feel like our leaders have this colonialized view of where they think their partnership should lie. And if it comes out of the mouth of their people who are also well-connected, who also know things, not good enough. But a foreigner can come to our land and give us this, this theory of a good idea and we will feed them our money and capital even though their ideas aren't flushed out, because again, who's on the front lines of climate change? Not America, not Canada, say Martin. And I think that that also like goes back to what we were talking about in social media and being performative. And, you know, I think leaders more and more are now asked to, to make things aesthetic and make things uh, 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 the branding is the marketing. Yeah. The marketing make it look like we have our shit together, but really yeah. it's all doo doo underneath the mask. Like just- we need to start, like in general, just like being more accountable. And for me, that's not just about government. It's like okay, so how are we as the people who vote these people in every election? How are we holding them accountable, and how are we asking for more? Because as I mentioned, like during the youth summit that we were both a part of they know 
that we might be upset at certain times and then it dies down. So we need to ask ourselves critically, like, what are the issues that we care about and how are we going about it? And I think that it becomes hard when you also like see random stuff that pops up and you want to react to it. And it's like, but what? And and we lose sight of like, okay, but like, what is that like underground or like that common thread that we're just trying to sow? Um, and I think that we aren't having enough constructive discussions about that. We don't have like a media space or a cultural space. Yeah, like a debate that, forum, period. Yeah, period. because I know that you have like the JCIs, uh, which promote like uh, uh, public speaking and the Toastmasters. But it's like, how are those forums that bring people together in a very constructive and structural way? Like you could easily use that to be like a common thread that, that uh, uh, promotes certain messages or pushes things forward. But we just have to think about it. And I mean, this is critique towards me as well. Like I, I've been here now b- back for three years and it's like, I'm constantly asking myself, it, it's so hard because you're, you're trying to also bridge generations and what generations respond to. Um, every time I come up with something, it feels like it's already outdated for what, how young people are grasping information. You feel like, let's be honest, you've already lost the older folk. Like, yeah, they're not interested. They're not coming to the podcast. No, it's like, yeah, <laughs> we, we just got to ask them for knowledge. And then we have to figure out with like the, the technology and the ways of the youth, like how to embed this. But it, there is really a lack of communication that is happening like between the generations. It's very much tied, not just to, I think culture, but also to power, you know, like who wants to pass on information and like they, because when history uh, is not institutionalized, what it allows a country or community to do is to pick and choose who it passes on the knowledge to, because the knowledge holders know who they are and they can say, I'm going to have a conversation with this kid, but I'm not having a conversation with that kid. And that's just only helping to breed the inequality that we're experiencing. Right. So for me, it's constantly asking, like, how do you institutionalize something and also like keep up to date with the fact that like, I mean, things are constantly becoming outdated. So I think like sometimes but I feel like it just takes like a push thinking that it's happening faster than it really it is. is yeah. You know? No, and so it's definitely. like, I think important to have people from all different sectors. So like, you don't have to worry. I'm like, Carly, it's okay. The technology is progressing, but don't worry, sis. <laughs> I just don't know. Catch up. We can't. I don't know how to create a TikTok. And it's don't worry. Really... <laughs> I feel you. No, but I mean, um, right now uh, I work together with a really amazing young woman named Makisha Brooks. She is the managing director of the St. Martin Development Fund. And I mean, like, she inherited the, she, like, took over the organization from the past managing director. And I think, like, since taking over, she's, like, more than quadrupled the amount of work that they do and the funding that they're able to give. And she's, like, this amazing young woman that is so humble, never talks about all the amazing things that she's doing, but is always doing it. Yeah, we gotta um, uplift our women. Like, I mean, yes. just even our heroes, our local heroes, men, women, whoever you may be. Like, we have to lift them up because, yeah, like they're doing awesome work. And like, I feel like it can be hard when you're doing that kind of work and nobody's like at least telling you, like, sis, you're doing good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I know it's hard. You're doing the Lord's work. I know, but we love you for it. So yes. don't give up. Even though I know it's hard, just don't keep fighting the fight. Exactly. Um, so I'm really lucky to have uh, her and together we uh, run or we took over the Info Media Foundation. And so we're moving forward. We're moving forward. We're developing what we want. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, we will already have our product out there roaming around. Um, we'll see. Or people will be, you know, more uh, in the knowledge about what's coming out. Yeah. Um, but it, it definitely, I think, uh, something that I, I took from my studies is the ability to overthink everything from different angles in ways that you're just not supposed to overthink it with. And I think that that's just also like a a, a value of the certain generation that we're in, because I feel like, like when I talk to my mom, she's like, as a youth, 
I never heard about overthinking something, you know, like, but it's something that we're like, oh, anxiety and overthinking. That's like my life words. Yeah. Like, I'm like, you're defining your girl. <laughs> yeah. 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 Me too. But I think that definitely like it's so important to create a circle around you of people that like get you out of the tunnel or that just make you jump. I think that that's one thing about coming from a small community. It's that the pressure to fail feels much harder. I'm not going to say that it is than being in a bigger society because it's like, if you fail at this, like, oh, everyone's going to know. Um, but the you. thing is, like, you fail harder if you don't try at all. Um, and so I so appreciate, like, so many people who I come across on a daily basis who are just really trying to, you know, from their angles, fix the problems that they see in St. Martin. Because I, I don't think that it's like we're going to elect a whole new government and suddenly everything's going to be fixed, you know? Like, social progress comes from all of us doing the best that we can where we are. Exactly. And exactly. that collectively coming together. And I yes. think that more and more I see people who are actively acknowledging, like, this is my circle of control. And in my circle of control, I do my work and I do it good. And that just rubs off. It creates a chain reaction of people doing their job and doing it well. And to be part of like different initiatives in which you come across people that inspire you in that way, it's also been really great. And those stories don't get out enough in St. Martin, I think, because uh, I think we are also a society that just enjoys complaining a lot. You know, it's just part of it. And I'm not going to knock it because I like to complain too. <laughs> I feel you. It's, it's, thera oh, it's therapeutic. Exactly. It's therapeutic. Exactly. Um, just rant a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But I think like definitely like it's going to take more and more of us seeing that we all work together. That even if we have similar ideas, like it's fine. We're not in competition. Like all the work that we do is just going to help to uplift. And there's also like no wrong. And if you acknowledge that you want that pie and the other guy wants that pie you could eat it together and like it's gonna Still work enjoy the pie like there's plenty it's of gonna pie. work out yeah you know? yeah exactly exactly yeah and you know it's not just like it's and that's why like going abroad I think to me is like obviously something that helps you so much because you start to realize like it's not just here because in the Netherlands I also had it so much that you would come across uh, persons from minority backgrounds be it like whether they identified as like women or or they're from a, whichever community um, and they think that they're the only ones that can make it there's only room for one within this community to make it and and that's capitalistic thinking like that's what capitalism wants you to think and how it wants you to operate competition, not collaboration when it's like at the yeah. end of the day you know how all these countries make money because of collaboration they can't yeah. do it on their own yeah. like yeah. that's why china manufactures everything and like like i'm like guys like none of them are making it on their own and that's why i'm always surprised when c martin has these limiting beliefs i'm like why do you think we have to do this by ourselves like we can make the same deals that these countries made but put our people in the front that's it yep yep and and it just takes like but we have to like foster that environment and create that culture you know because it's like the thing is I also agree that uh, we we don't do a good job at creating spaces in which we can consume St. Martin products you know it's like why do we make it so easy uh, everybody else's things but yeah, not ours yeah exactly. exactly so and it it's just like a, a, ma a matter of like changing perspective and uh, I think we're seeing that more and more um, and I think the conversation is always just like how are we also having a conversation that's uplifting that's not becoming like exclusive because also I think that in the conversation about like buy our own you start to boycott other products and it's like okay we're not trying to create like a only say Martin lives matter like we're yeah like it's you know okay. like exactly but it's like you we have to teach ourselves value in, yeah, in local yeah, products exactly. you know and and so yeah it's also hard because you know sometimes like 
it's easy like when we say like oh support art but especially like with products sometimes I'm like oh yeah like I so want to just like tell everyone like be this super influencer maybe and be like oh I tried the St. Martin product you should buy it try it out too and on the other side I'm always having conversations uh, with my friends about consumerism and the fact that the whole point is that we need to be buying less I don't really want to I I don't think I ever want to have a conversation with someone where I convince them to buy something you know like I'm always like okay if you tell me like I made you think a different way cool but you're like oh yeah you know like I bought like this product covered in plastic because like I saw they use it I would be like oh <laughs> I feel you I feel you it is this weird balance because we are yeah. in this world where it's like you you're told that in order for have for your art to have value it needs to be sold and like a lot of people need to have it you know yeah. but it's like in that process like people don't realize it's like we're trying to be sustainable but we don't want to make less stuff yeah like it's yeah. like people that say like i want to lose weight but i don't want to stop eating all yeah. the food that i'm eating well you're not gonna lose weight if you if you continue this way and it's like like i have all these ideas because i'm really a maker i want to make stuff carla and i'm like damn but it's like i want to make merch but i'm like okay well now you have to think about all the water that goes into fabric production and like all the crabs and like the do they pay their and, workers and exactly like is the factory that you're gonna use and then it's like okay well that makes it just hella expensive and it's like okay is your customer gonna pay for that and it's like okay but then what are the sizes that you need and then it's yeah. like well you need to know your audience and then yeah. it's a whole tra la la when yeah. it's like i just want to make a few cute hoodies and my friends wear them i i completely understand you know and i think like uh it's so hard also when we're talking about sustainability and then we realize that the the products that match everything it's like okay cool like i can buy it but then what about everybody else you know and and so sustainability clothing for or like sustainable clothing for example like it's always criticized for the fact that you know like mine uh, uh it's expensive yeah so <laughs> you know like who can afford it you know and then it becomes like this like sustainable clothing becomes this elite thing and it's like those same elites own all these sustainable clothing and support it but then also also got all their louis chanel that and and nike that are season duh like what do you think they're gonna be on the gram with something from walmart you must be lying hell no you know what i mean i feel you and it's a whole conundrum and it's like i think about as a human how do i fit into all of this you know what choices do i make because it's like the louis bag look cute it do it look cute you know and there's a little girl in me that's like i want it you know but then it's like sis do you really need it though like you don't you just want it because you think it'll bring you happiness and it won't yeah it won't it's so true it's so true and i think it's also like about this idea of having to play like a certain persona you know it's like sometimes i like i had a conversation the other day like what if I made all my Instagram posts wearing like the same exact outfit. Like I might be in different places or whatever, but like I'm always wearing the same exact clothes. I bet you people will notice and subtly be like, "Is Carla poor?" Oh, she ain't got no clothes. Well, well you know, like the same thing. Like, yo, we see that one already. And so I think that also it's super interesting to see like the way in which like the field of creating on instagram also perpetuates really newness yeah it shows you yes this like high value consumer culture and it's like you can't knock that from people you know like that's the thing like this is what they like to do but it's like we need to also figure out how to do this in a more healthy way for our planet because let's be honest like like, we are as people i feel like we put so much pressure on ourselves to create because of capitalism that every year you need a new product every quarter we need new money coming in otherwise this this boat don't flow and it's like okay but like can we like we have all this stuff like can we just take a break what if the earth just went on vacation for a year like can we just chill out you know like i don't understand why we pressing so hard for what we don't even know where we're going Yeah. Why are we working so hard? I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. I really don't. And like, I think about this and then I think about how, what St. Martin could have been, you know what I mean? And then I have to stop myself because I'm like, Harsha, you living in the past. It's not good for yeah. you. Live in the yeah. present. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's very true. But I like, I just think like, imagine we lived in a society where it comes back to you need money, right? To live in this world, to operate in this world. Cause like you need money for rent and for food. Realistically, basic needs. I always thought like, what if in St. Martin, we realize, okay, like what if we could actually provide for our people? We fed them. And we gave them somewhere to live. And that was like the two basic requirements you got as a St. Martiner. And from there, we let our people just do whatever the hell they want. Because at the end of the day, you then have the freedom to really just live. Because you're not worried about, I'm going to be homeless. You're not worried about, I'm not going to have food on the table. But then it's hard because then we, you, you teeter this communist line where like, if you give everybody the same, then it's just shitty all around. Um because we live in this capitalistic world that allows us to have more than what we technically maybe should have. And we're so spoiled now that like to take that away, people aren't going to do that because then they're like, I'm giving up. And like, why would I give up to move forward? You know, 